So one of the cardinal rules of public speaking is that you never apologize and you never admit that you're scared. Well, I'm a believer that in writing and in public speaking, every now and then, rules are made to be broken. So I'm going to admit to you that I'm more nervous about today's message than I've ever been. And I've been preaching for a very long time, and I've never been more nervous about it. And so I want to, we're, we're talking about denigrification and white privilege today. And those terms will, will come into some clarity as, as we continue through the service. But I want to tell you three reasons why I'm a little bit terrified today. Number one is just standard nervousness. Any preacher with his salt, uh, it, it's a great responsibility to stand in front of a bunch of people and have anything to share with them. So Sunday, Sunday, Saturday nights at the Hussman household are not very fun. I do a lot of pacing. That's just standard nervousness. But you, you, you add that to what is probably the most fiery topic in our lifetimes, and it amplifies that a little bit. And it, this is the very first time in my entire life that I simply advertised a sermon and got cussed out for it. It's just, I mean, and people don't even have any idea what I'm going to talk about today, and yet they're cussing us out online. And so it's, it's a fiery, dicey topic, and I get that. Then number two is that I am fearful of my own ignorance. On the top, there, when, when it comes to uh, highly controversial topics, I like to be extremely well studied before I ever present on them. And I've spent months studying this topic, but I have to confess it's only been months. And that's a little bit of an embarrassment to me. I, uh, when, when I taught on the topic of homosexuality, which of course is a really dicey topic, I, I spent years studying and preparing for it and wrapping my brain around it. But this is such an important issue, and I feel like God is leading us in a direction to have this conversation. So despite the fact, I, I heard recently that when it comes to race, a lot of people aren't aware. They don't know what they don't know. In other words, we have a lot of ignorance in us, and I don't mean ignorance to be disrespectful or insulting. It just means we don't know. We're not, we're not in the minds of a person of color. So white people, we're, we, we can't wrap our brains around the topic of, of race. And so I, I heard, you don't know what you don't know, but then I heard another preacher say, I don't even know that I don't know what I don't know. It's, it's that the ignorance on the topic of race can run so deep that we don't even have a clue that we have any ignorance. And so it's, it's extremely challenging to get past ignorance, and even my own ignorance. And I, I recognize that even in my past, the issue of race and racism has popped up. When I was a middle schooler, I, I owned and wore this t-shirt a lot. And I was probably 12 years old, and I had no, no clue, absolutely no idea that this could be insulting to anyone. I just thought it was a kid with funny hair. You know, when I was 12 years old, that's all I thought about the t-shirt is that it's a funny image. And I remember a, an African-American lady pulling up next to me on the sidewalk one day. I'm walking down the sidewalk. She pulls up on the road, and she rolls down her window, and she starts screaming profanity at me, saying, you're such a blankety-blank, blankety-blank. And I had no idea why, why that happened. I had no, no clue. Uh, it, it, it was years later that I looked back on this t-shirt and recognized that this was kind of a racial slur on a t-shirt and that it was an insulting image. But, and, and my, I really believe at that moment, my heart was innocent. I, I, did not, I had no intentions of degrading anyone, and yet it was there, and I was walking in it in my ignorance. And in my, in, in, in my post-college years, I met my good friend Termaine, who's right here up front with me, and he's, he's tag-teaming with me on, uh, on this sermon series. And I consider his friendship one of the more valuable friendships of my life because it opened my eyes to even further ignorance that, that was in me that I was totally unaware of. I was a campus pastor, a campus minister. He was a new student. And we became friends and started hanging out together here and there. 
And I always made light of color and tried to have the attitude, I don't see color. So I would introduce my, and it wouldn't just be Termaine, I'd introduce my black friends as saying, hey, this is my black friend Termaine. And it was kind of a way of saying, I don't even see race, and I'm trying to make light of it. And I didn't realize that to them, to my black friends, there was a little bit of an insult in that. It was, I was having to bring color into a situation that didn't require any, any bringing of color into it. And then there was another time we were at Walmart in Murray, Kentucky, and I remember he was in the back seat, and I was looking in the rearview mirror, and I said to Termaine, I said, T, I said, I can only see your teeth back there, man. And because it was dark in the back of the car, and all I could see is his teeth, and I'm trying to say, we're brothers from another mother, man. We're, you know, we're so tight that I can make light of race. And he, didn't, he confessed to me years later that he always had a hard time being around me. I had no idea. My heart was a heart that just wanted us to be friends. I didn't have any clue that the things I was saying were hurting him. And so even today, I am fearful because if I, was, if I could be ignorant and kind of stupid back then, I recognize that I'm still capable of that today. And I'm concerned about it. And then finally, I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned about the questioning whether I can make a contribution. Something just happened to the sound. Uh, whether I can make a contribution. I saw a video last week of, of a white businessman who apparently is very wealthy and has a mentoring network, and he was offering scholarships to young African Americans if they wanted to come and get a business mentor and learn how to go into business for themselves. And so I think he was offering $150,000 worth of scholarships to young African American people. And when you read the comment section underneath this, People, some people are real excited about it, saying this is a great thing that you're doing, and some people hated him for it, from both the blacks and the white community. The black and white communities both blasted him for this from different angles, saying why this was a bad idea, or why didn't you do this, or why didn't you do it that way. So I'm aware that a guy who gets up and really does his best to try to help can get blasted for it. And really, if you look at the, at the, at the movie clip that we just showed, it was a black regiment during the Civil War with a white commander, and what you see in that clip is the white man coming to the rescue, don't you? Really, at the end of the clip, everyone's cheering the white guy, but nobody cheers Denzel Washington's character. And so even, even if a person of privilege, which we'll talk about as we go on, whether we are, are or are not people of privilege when we're white, even if a person of privilege steps in to try to make a difference, there's this ugly thing that happens that even in their supposed heroism, white privilege comes in and kind of takes over and makes, makes the situation wrong and challenging. There's, in, in, in the case of racism and racial justice, it, it, it almost feels like there's no wins for anyone. We just have to tread so carefully and, 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 and think so clearly and speak so articulately, and nobody was designed to be that perfect. And so I'm asking for mercy from everyone today. I'm studying, I'm presenting what I'm studying, I'm still learning, I'm still ignorant on a lot of things, but I'm asking you to bear with me and see if we don't learn something, and here's why. Scripture teaches from the prophet Isaiah that this is the kind of fasting God chooses. He says, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. I don't suspect that today's conversation or today's, today's topic is going to fix racism in our country. I, I'm not under any delusions. I'm not even convinced that it'll, it'll purify everything in me or in you. But what I do think is that we have problems and we need to get those problems on the table and we need to start talking about them. I also want to say this, 
Today, I'm going to focus primarily on the relationships between Caucasians and African Americans. I recognize that there are a thousand race issues between Asians and Native Americans and Latinos. I get it that racism, racism pervades all, all cultures, but I feel like black and white today is such a, it's this in our, in our culture and in our country, and that's where I'm going to focus. And it isn't to belittle or to demean the other race topics. This just happens to be the one that I feel like and I feel confident talking about today. But in a sense, racism is still kind of the elephant in the room. Uh, I, I saw a, a statement on, on, well, just when we advertised on Facebook this week, some of the statements of people saying that racism doesn't exist, to me, show a whole lot of ignorance. And I heard, I heard this quote a couple weeks ago. He said, racism in America is like a home with a strong stench. Despite it being obvious to people on the outside, people living in it cannot smell their own stink. I think if we're going to deal with racism, we've got to open the windows up, we've got to open the doors up, we've got to let the place air out, and we've got to, we've got to get out of the house for a while so that we can turn around and come back in and smell, what is wrong with the carpet in here? We've gotten so used to it, and we've walked in it for so long, that we become kind of desensitized to it. And that's part of the reason why I think we need to at least have a conversation. We at least need to talk about the topic. Now, I, was, I wake up at 3.30, 4 in the morning a lot of days, and I don't know why, I just wake up and I'm wide awake. And sometimes I get up and I stay the rest of the day. Sometimes I get up for an hour, I go walk in the basement and pray. Sometimes I lay in bed and read. And one morning, approximately a month and a half ago, while I was really thinking about this sermon a lot and really mulling over it, I woke up at 3.30 in the morning, I got up for an hour, I came back to bed, and I'm laying there half awake, half asleep and praying. And I had what I can only describe as a dream slash vision from God. And I really believe it was from God, and I hope that you will see why in just a moment. But as I'm dreaming or half awake having a vision, I'm not even sure. I'm just laying there and this thing happens. I'm talking to God in this, I'm having a conversation with God. And in that conversation, he says, he says these words. He says, HL, he said, if you could see all of me, you would see pure joy. So that was God's statement to me in this half-awake, half-asleep state that I was in. If you could see all of me, you would see pure joy. And in this dream, I saw this great expanse of what was like bright lights and fire. And it covered everything. In every single direction I looked, it was just endless. And I knew in this dream that this was joy and that God was joy. And if you could step into that infinite expanse, that's what you would experience. And as I was experiencing this, God said something else to me in this dream. He said, I want to cure Arthritis, psoriasis, cancer, and hegemony disease. Now, I had absolutely no idea what the definition of hegemony was. I know I've heard that word at some point in my life, but I couldn't possibly have defined it for you. So I'm looking at this God that is infinite joy, and he says, I want to cure arthritis, psoriasis, cancer, and hegemony disease. And you may or may not be familiar with it. I woke up at this point, snapped out of whatever was going on, reached for my phone, thinking hegemony disease is probably not a real thing. I'm thinking this is just bad pizza, and that's, that didn't come from God. Well, I, I, so I type in hegemony disease, and sure enough, hegemony disease is a real thing. And what hegemony disease is, is the tendency of cultures to attempt to lord over other cultures. Isn't that crazy? If, if, you want, if you see a definition of hegemony, it, it's, it's described as this, the social, cultural, ideological, or economic influence exerted by a dominant group. 
So a culture that is dominant over culture, other cultures is hegemony, and the disease of that is tendencies of cultures to try to maintain that hegemony. That's hegemony disease. I couldn't even remember the word hegemony for weeks after that. I had to draw up the word matrimony to get my brain to hegemony because I was just utterly and totally unfamiliar with it. And it was during this whole process of me preparing for this series. A day after I had this service, one or two days after, it was a Sunday afternoon, and I told you about Peter McClellan texting me last week, and this is what he texted me. He texted me after a service. He said, H, I promise I have not been drinking, but when you closed up the service today, he said, and you said, let's pray, I closed my eyes. And when I closed my eyes, he said, I think I had a vision or something. He said, it was like I was staring at the movie screen, even though my eyes were closed. And he said, at the movie screen... He said, the top half of the screen was black, and the bottom half of the screen was white. And he said, and there was a man standing in the, in the white section of the screen, staring out at the black section of the screen. Now, this, this happens a day or two after I have this, this vision slash dream where God is telling me hegemony disease is something I want to heal. When I'm thinking about how do we look into the black community, how, do we, how, how can we wrap our minds around what the black community has experienced. That's what's going on in my mind when Peter, who's only been a Christian for about a year, texts me with this vision that he had. Now, I, I feel like God is stirring something. I feel like God has something that he wants brought out at the table, and I've done my best to study, and I've done my best to, to consider, and I'm going to present to you what, what I feel like, what's on my mind concerning race and race issues. But here's the bottom line. Scripture teaches... All the nations you have made will come and worship you. The kingdom of God is a kingdom without walls. The kingdom of God is a kingdom where people of every color, every, every nation, come together under one banner, the banner of Jesus Christ, and worship him. And there is no hegemony. There is no dominant culture. There is no racism. There is no slavery. There is nothing of the sort. There is only one. And that, I feel like that is the heart of God. And many, many preachers today argue that that's one of the main reasons Jesus came, was to restore the races, to bring reconciliation between the races. These are my kids. This is probably a picture you're going to see a couple times a year. <laughs> if I'm upstairs in my office and my two-year-old daughter, Elena, starts screaming bloody murder, I go downstairs. Now, my first order of business is to make sure she's okay. It's to make sure she's safe. So I'm going to say, are you okay? I'm going to hold her, say it's going to be all right. I'm going to rub her hair and, and try to make everything better. Then I'm going to try to determine what happened. And when I determine what happened, if it's some kind of conflict between her and my eight-year-old son, what's my, what's my number one question, you think? What, what did Siler do? Or more to the point, I want to know who started it. Because I need to know who's responsible. If she took something from him and ripped it out of his hands and he pulled it back from her and she, Rah! well, that was her fault. And I'm not going to punish anybody. I'm not going to discipline at all. But if he just poked her in the eye for no reason, he's doing a timeout or something worse. Okay? My, my idea is to figure out, if we're going to figure out this conflict and what's going down here, I need to start with the beginning. I need to figure out who started it. And I, this will make some people very angry. I will be cussed for this when we post the video. I am con convinced that in America, white people started this problem. White, now, now, I do recognize that in 
Africa, there were warring African tribes fighting one another, taking each other as slaves, and selling one another off to white men that came in boats. I get that. And so it, it isn't to say that black on black anything didn't have anything to do with slavery. But if, if there are no Johns, there are no pimps. If, if there's no slave trade, which was propagated almost entirely by white people, there is no shipping people off from Africa. White people enslaved black people. This is just factual history, people. So when we look back at the history of racism in our country, I think white people need to own up to the fact that it's just like my son. If he started it by poking her in the eye, he needs to pay for that. And see, as white people, we have this, this thought process that's, that goes like this. Well, I didn't do that. I, as an individual, had nothing to do with that. And the problem with that is twofold. Number one, we, we live in a, in a Western religious culture that is very um, individualistic, and that's how we live our lives. That's not how most cultures everywhere have existed throughout history. It's not how scripture seems to indicate people ought to exist, that we rise or fall with our cultures and with our communities. And secondly, we still, in a sense, benefit from the sins of our forefathers. And we need to become aware of that. I, I, it, let, me, let me share this quote with you. This, this white lady that's writing on white privilege says this. She says, I was taught to see racism only in individual acts of meanness, not in invisible systems conferring dominance on my group. And so when I say white people need to take notice and recognize that we started it, what I'm talking about is that we need to recognize that there is a systemic problem that remains in America. We bought and sold people. Even when they were freed, they, they had no trade. All they had done was ever pick cotton. So they still ended up in low poverty, low, low economic situations. They, they couldn't just go become big landowners. They, a lot of, many, many, many of them didn't read or write. And so in a and, and we all know that the poll taxes existed, perpetuated forever. I don't want to pretend we haven't made progress because we have. There are no more poll taxes. Okay? I don't mean this as a political statement. I'm, I'm not even telling you anything about my, my politics. I'm real careful to avoid that. But the fact that we have an, an African-American man as the president of our country, the highest ranking office in our country and potentially in the world is phenomenal. It's absolutely awesome that an African-American man could be president of this country based on where we've come from. So we have made progress. But the systemic problems that came out of the poverty that we perpetuated on the black man from those days has filtered and trickled down even to the current day. And so I want to talk briefly, not, actually not so briefly, about white privilege. White privilege are, are words that get thrown around that just really anger people. And, and, and really the, the, the negative backslash that we've gotten from advertising this series, which we, they don't even know what we're going to talk about, but we posted the words white privilege. And the negative backlash has come from white people because people don't want to recognize their privilege. I'm not even saying that privilege is a bad thing. I think you can do a lot with privilege. What I'm saying is that we need to recognize that as white people, we have advantages that people of color do not have. For example, if words don't really hurt you, you probably benefit from white privilege. There is no white equivalent to the N-word. We have a, a girl that comes to our church here periodically. I sat down at lunch a few weeks ago and was asking her about her issues with racism. She's an African-American lady. And uh, she remembers when she was about 10 or 11 years old 
they, they had a phone number that apparently was wrong in their phone, and they had dialed it two or three times and gotten the wrong person on the other line. And it was, it was just a simple mistake. And I'm going, to use a, I'm, going to, I'm going to use a word here, because not, not because I want to celebrate the word, because I want you to think about the impact of a 10-year-old or an 11-year-old hearing this comment. So they make a mistaken phone call for the second or third time, and the person on the other line says, I wish you niggers had stopped calling me. Now, we don't know how they knew, that, how the person on the other end of the line knew that this was an African-American family calling. I suppose something about the inflections of their voices. But for the first time, this, this, this lady that I was communicating with says that she, it, it hurt her. It impacted her. She had, she had no idea as a 10-year-old that anyone could just hate her for, nothing that ha- that has nothing, for anything that has nothing to do with her. It's, it, it's just a skin color. In her perspective, she's a normal kid growing up, playing games, having fun, enjoying her family, eating food. And then she finds out that people hate me because of my color, because of a word. White people, what do you call them, honky, cracker? We laugh at these words. We don't, go, we don't mourn these words when they come. Just the existence of words that can, can rip your heart out is something white people don't deal with. It's a small example, but it, it's a picture of a much bigger thing. I talked about denegrification in the title, and there's, there's a famous essay from Franz Fanon uh, called The B- Fact of Blackness. And in it, this is satire that he's writing, but in it he talks about, he says, for several years certain laboratories have been trying to produce a serum for denegrification that might make it possible for the miserable Negro to whiten himself and thus throw off the burden of that corporal malediction. What's the white equivalent of denegrification? Is there such a word? I mean, is there even anything in the white community that says you, you really ought to try to become more black? Denegrification exists. All you got to do is look at the evolution of Michael Jackson. It's a perfect example of a man who wanted to become more white, who was African-American, uncomfortable in his skin, and wanted to become more white. Now, communicating with my black friends, and I don't know this, I can't experience this, but my understanding is that even in the black culture, there's kind of a hierarchy between dark-skinned blacks and light-skinned blacks that occurs. I can't speak for that myself, but I see some people of color in the room nodding at me. It's this idea that the light-skinned blacks somehow are prettier or better or, you know, superior to the dark-skinned blacks. That's a perfect illustration of denegrification. It's trying to get away from being black. If this is the definition of beauty, you probably experience white privilege. Type in the word beauty into Google. These are the images that come up, period. It's not even images of nature. It's images of white women. Now, you'll notice in the bottom right-hand corner, one person of color. There's, a, there's, an, there's an Asian lady up here, an Indian lady, and a little Asian girl here, and one person of color in, in the bottom right corner. That's because up there, you'll see that I put labeled for reuse with modification. In other words, I was looking for pictures that I don't need copyright license to show you guys today. If you just type in beauty, there's not a single person of color on the list. So what is a person to do? Do we all agree that beautiful people are privileged? That beauty does get your foot in the door in certain situations? That beauty does land you a better chance at a family life? Isn't beauty a privilege? And we as a culture have defined beauty. And if you go to Google and type in what is it, it's white people. That is white privilege. If three seats... 
When one seed is enough, Franz Fanon, the guy that I quoted earlier, talks about in, in that essay that he would get on the bus, and, and, and I don't know the dates of this, I believe it was pre-civil rights, but he would get on a bus and, and he would find that people would leave a seat to his right and a seat to his left empty on a bus full of people. And he, he, he used that kind of to illustrate a, a, a pressure that was on his life constantly, and it was the pressure of carrying three bodies is what he describes it as. He says, I don't just get to be a black man. I don't just get to be me and my life, but I constantly carry the body of my ancestors and I constantly carry the body of my race. In other words, black people many times feel the weight of representing the entirety of their race in a way that white people can't possibly understand. In that essay, he talks about an African-American physician friend of his, and in those days, an African-American physician was, was uncommon. And, and so now that I'm thinking about this, this may have been post-civil rights, I'm not sure. But he talks about the weight of this man, because as an African-American and a physician, he doesn't just get to be a physician. The weight that he carries is that if I blow it, if I mess up a surgery, if I give somebody the wrong medication, if I make the wrong call and somebody dies, I'm not just a guy who's also a doctor who made a bad call. I am the entire black race making a bad call. I am representing every, everyone in my race. Now you might say, but that's not true. And perhaps you're right. We don't know his job situation. We don't know his coworkers. We don't know what kind of attention he would get. But the point is this, true or false, African-Americans carry this kind of weight. They carry that kind of pressure of thinking, I don't just represent myself. If a white doctor makes a mistake, nobody says, well, that's because white doctors are uneducated thugs. Nobody ever says that about a white person. It's just a white person who made a mistake. But people carry those attitudes about African-American people. The same lady, Peggy McIntosh, says, I can talk with my mouth full and not have people put this down to my color. If someone is loud and boisterous in a restaurant and they're white, we recognize them as a loud or boisterous person. If a person is loud or boisterous in a restaurant and they're black, I think we all can agree that many will view them as representing their race. And that's what Fanon meant by carrying the weight of three bodies, is I have this pressure on me. White people just don't have that pressure, and that is a privilege. I can live where I want as a white person. If I move into Middletown or I move into St. Matthews, that's fine because that's where the affluent people live, and white people tend to be more affluent. Nobody questions it. If I move into to the hood, if I move over to West Louisville and move, move into lower income areas as a white person, maybe of decent income, people will view me as trying to do something good. They'll view me as a, a kind of a hero. I'm trying to make a difference, make my mark. Now reverse that with a black person. A black person moves into St. Matthew's. Anybody ever heard the phrase white flight? There's words that hurt that white people don't deal with. Have you ever heard of, of, of black people fleeing white people? Not very often. You don't, you don't have where people are concerned about property values going down when the white folk move in. And yet if black people move in, and, and then there's, so they have this, this option of staying in the hood or moving on to wider areas. And then there's this pressure my understanding is this, this, there's this pressure because you're, as an African-American, especially in low-income low areas, there's this pressure to be the first to graduate from college in our, in our family, to go out, educate yourself, educate yourself, educate yourself. That's the proper rallying cry. It makes sense to say that. But once a person educates themselves and then they find success and then they move into maybe a more affluent area, oftentimes they're labeled as sellouts. 
So it's kind of a no-win situation for, for an African-American. They can continue to live in, in the lower income areas, which is not optimal for anyone, and we all, we all want to see that change for everyone, or they can move into other areas and deal with conflict from their race and their community. These are pressures that white people don't deal with. If this is not a problem, you, you benefit from white privilege. My African-American male friends say they do not walk around at night, especially with a hoodie on. I was talking to a buddy recently, and, he, and between him and his other African-American friends, it's almost like white people say, hey, check you later, see ya. He was talking about with his friends, he, he'll, they'll say something like, keep that hoodie down. That's just like a catchphrase they say to mean stay safe. Don't, don't put yourself in a suspicious situation. We don't have to worry about that stuff as white people. It's just an additional pressure. If you can pay at the turn, I've been into speed golf recently, and so I get up at 5.30 in the morning, and I'll go hit the golf course at sunup. Whatever time, if sunup is 6.24, I'm teeing off at 6.20. So I'll tee off, and I'll run after the ball, and I'll, I'll bust out nine holes in like 45 minutes or an hour. The, the, the issue with that is usually the courses aren't open. And so a lot of times I'll get there before the course is even open, I'll tee off into the sunrise, and I'll run after the ball, and then after the nine, which is called the turn, so at the turn, I'll go in and pay. So I just take for granted that I can get away with this. Golf is a gentleman's sport. People tend to honor one another where golf is concerned. But recently, I was at a course here in Louisville, and they stopped me in the middle of my nine. And it was the best nine of my life. And I absolutely blew up after this. I was so frustrated. Separate sermon. <laughs> but I'm walk I hit my drive. It was beautiful. Fantastic drive. And I'm walking to my ball when a guy on a lawnmower gets off his lawnmower, walks over, picks my ball up, and starts walking towards me. And I can tell he's not happy. He says, can I see your receipt? And I said, well, I don't have a receipt. I said, I, I said I, I've done this many times here, and it's never been a problem. But, and, and I said, I do have a, a, a membership card or whatever. Um, but I was just going to pay at the turn. He said, that can't happen. And I said, oh, okay. I said, I said, I didn't mean anything by it. I'm not trying to cause any trouble. I've done it at courses all over the world. Um, but, but if that's you guys' policy, I'm, I'm happy to comply with that. I said, can I leave my bag here and just go pay at the clubhouse right now? And, and he softened towards me a little bit. He was nice towards the end of the conversation. And he said, yeah, sure. So I jogged the almost mile back to the clubhouse and got in. And the course pro was there, and he was steamed. I mean, he, he was, he, he, and he was talking down to me. And I was saying, look, this will never happen again. I had no idea that, because I've done it here before without problem. I said, I had no idea that this would bother you guys. But I said, I promise, it'll never happen again. And he got to the point where he turned his back on me and would not even finish the conversation. And I went away from that situation while I'm mulling over this sermon. And there's no way to prove this. There's no way to know this for sure. But I have been asking myself, what if I had been a black man? Had I been an African-American person, what would the response have been? And let's say, and, and they, they, they were just not happy with me. But let's say... One out of a hundred times, I'm a white guy on the course doing what I was doing. Let's say one out of a hundred times, they call the cops on me. We can't know for sure, but I think if we're all honest, we suspect that that number would be higher if I was African American. Again, we don't know for sure, but let's pretend that that number was only two out of a hundred instead of one out of a hundred. That is white privilege. It's, it's these little tiny things that add up. And I've asked my black friends since then, would you ever do what I did? And they said, no, 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 no. I would not even think about doing that. And that's pressure. 
See, as a white person, I feel like I can talk my way out of the cops. I feel like if I, if I go there, I can talk my way out of the course pro because, I mean, you know, it's all honor system here. We're all good, right? I don't carry the weight of thinking I will automatically be accused. True or false, that weight is there. If you can shop without a tail, you maybe benefit from white privilege. I, I asked a black friend of mine recently, have you ever noticed that when you were in a store that someone followed you around to watch you? And his statement was, it became so commonplace that I actually began to ignore it. I don't ever remember feeling like somebody walked around Walmart behind me making sure I didn't steal anything. White privilege. If this will do, a friend was telling me a story this week about an, an Indian guy that came to work with him, and the Indian person came from New Jersey and moved to Kentucky, and he needed to get his driver's license address changed, and so he went into the office, and he brought two forms of ID, and he brought a printout from online showing his new address, and he went in, and, and they said, well, you've got the ID, and you've got this, but this came offline. We can't have this. This, this won't work. We, we have to have something that has actually physically been mailed from from, your, from this company showing that this is your new address. And he said, well, this came offline. I can show you on my account. And they said, well, that, that's just our policy. And they gave him the runaround for like a couple other meetings. So he had to go home and come back. And he had to go home and come back again for something else. And my buddy who's telling me the story says that about a week later, he had to do something very similar because he just changed locations. He's a white guy. And he went into the office and he said, I need to change my address. And this is what they said to him. They said, write your new address on this post-it note. That is white privilege. It still exists. It's tragic, but it's very real. And then there's this. You see this woman. She's angry. You ask what she's angry about. I, she looks fairly dignified to me in how she speaks. I, I suspect she's British and very proper. She sips her tea like this. And I suspect that what she's angry about is justified. She's standing up for something important. Maybe this is racism in me. I'm not sure. I confess my own ignorance. But what if this was a black lady up on the screen? Can't we, can't we at least say, even if there's 100 people in the room, can't we say there would be a larger percentage of people that would look poorly on her than they would a white person? Realistic or not, some people are going to see the angry black woman because black people are angry. Some people will, and that's a weight that African-American people carry. If I say to you, you're way too defensive, how do you get out of that? You can defend yourself. <laughs> hey, I win. You cannot defend yourself, which I can say, ah, silence is assent. You also agree that you're too defensive. In a sense, what white people did to African-Americans in the past puts them in that, in that situation. I read this quote recently. It says, by declaring someone lesser, we have already made them so. Often we view the defensive position as the lesser posture. The person on trial is necessarily viewed with suspicion. When a person is demeaned by others, he or she can accept the lesser position or rebel against it, and neither response comes without negative consequence. When you tell someone you're too defensive or your culture is too angry, you've already put them in a position that's kind of a no-win position. And that's not a position white people tend to face. But it is a position that the African-American community tends to face. So what do we do about it? If white privilege is a real thing, and I, go back and read, let's see, her, uh, that's not it, this is it. 
the article here, uh, Google white privilege unpacking the invisible knapsack when you get home. And she lists about 50 ways that white privilege shows up. I've only shared about eight with you. Uh, it's a very real thing. Uh, it in some degrees, it's very, very powerful, and in some de degrees, it's, it's relatively minor. But it is very real. So what, what should we do? I get to address white people as a white guy. Um, I, I appreciate the people of color that are here that are listening in, but my, my message today is to white people almost entirely. We need to be aware that we have been granted privilege. And why is that so important is because privilege comes with responsibility. I'm not saying white people are evil. I'm not saying down with the white guy. Please, that, don't, don't even hear a portion of that from me. What I am saying is that when you have a position of authority, when you have a position of power, in some sense, that comes with a responsibility to do something with that power. And so I want to talk just a little bit about what I think white people should do. Number one is going to tick some people off, but I think white people need to repent. Now, I get it that the thought is, I didn't do these things. But I'm not talking about... We have misconceptions about what the word sin means and what the word repent means. I'm not talking about sin as something you did wrong. And I'm not talking about repenting as stopping doing that wrong thing. What I'm talking about, when I talk about sin, I believe sin is systemic too. I believe sin has pervaded everything and it controls us in a sense. And I believe systemic racism exists and we walk in it and we can't smell the stink anymore. And when I say repent, I don't mean stop behavior. I mean turn from thinking. So when I say white people need to repent, I think white people need to recognize that we have a place of privilege and that privilege carries responsibility. I'm talking about changing the way we think. I'm not necessarily talking about stopping behaviors. But although I do think changing the way you think comes with behaviors. I also want to encourage us to, to separate race and economics. Low-income areas are typically higher crime areas. And what, ha what has happened throughout history is because of the terrible things that people did, that white people did, African-American culture has been uh, impoverished really is, is a good word for it. And so African-American people from the slave age on have had to work so hard to get one little leg up, to, to, get, to graduate one person in their family from college, to, to secure a good job. And so it, it, here, here's some statistics that are, that are pretty terrible. In 2013, if you look at the, uh, the net worth of families in America, white families have an average net worth of $142,000 approximately. Black families, that number is about 11,000. And so it, what has happened is that African-American people have congregated in high crime areas. And so we view east side, west side, and we view west side as the dangerous crime-laden side. And because black people have been confined to low-income areas, we view the black side as the dangerous side. When in reality, it has absolutely nothing to do with being black. It has nothing to do with skin color. It has to do with this historical hegemony that occurred that has brought people down and put them in a place of low income. And low income places are necessarily places with high prostitution, high drug use, because people become desperate. Thomas Merton, the famous 
traffic, Trappist monk that comes from Bardstown, Kentucky, uh, just a short ways from here, talked about visiting Harlem pre-civil rights and all the prostitution and all the drug use. And, but he also talked about the African-American people that would come around him and hear him teach and how precious they were. And he says that when you confine people to ghettos, naturally this stuff happens. Anger happens. People rise up. Prostitution occurs and so forth. And he compares those sins to the sin of hegemony. He doesn't define it as hegemony, but to the sins of the elite class, letting them be there in the first place. And he says, maybe the lesser sins are the prostitution and the drugs. Maybe the greater sin is domination. Race is particular and glorious. Class is abstract and wicked. We have placed races in classes. And that is sin. I would advise you to celebrate black people. I don't mean this to be patronizing. We, I have a friend on Facebook. This is not a picture of her, but she's gone through something similar. She's gone through cancer, a white lady that's gone through cancer. She's gone through chemo. She's making a good recovery. And the show of support to her and the celebration of her life is just outstanding. I mean, just post after post after post of people saying, you got this, girl, go for it. We're, we're behind you all the way. We've been praying for you. If there's anything I can do to help, let me help. I'm convinced that we need to look at the African-American community in a sense of very similar celebration because they have come up out of a cancer. They have come up out of a cancer that white people placed on them. And they have come out with a great deal of victory. It's not victory that's been won entirely, but we need to look at the African-American community and say, it's amazing what has happened. It's amazing what you have fought for. It's amazing how far you've come. And we celebrate you, just like we look at her and say, good job fighting through this. And, and the thing is, that doesn't make us heroes. If I, Termaine and I were talking yesterday, and he, he, he helped me with this illustration. If I I'm in your office and I take a big glass of orange juice and pour it all over your computer and pour it all over your desk. And then I, say, and then I watch you and I, maybe I even work with you to clean up a little portion of that desk. And I say, hey man, we're working together to make this, make this world a better place. I just kind of look like a moron. <laughs> You're not heroic to step up and do what you should have done all along. So we can't, we can't just, you know, fix our shirts and say, hey, we're the white people stepping in to help the, help the black folk. That's not what I'm talking about here. But what I'm talking about is celebrating people who have, who have in, in a great sense, overcome. I would encourage you to make new friends. They say that the, the number one cure for bigotry is to be well-traveled. If, if you can connect with people who don't think the way you do, have a different story, than you do. This, the same guy I was talking to who, who, who mentioned um, the, the hoodie comment talked about how he, he was playing high school football. And he's a young guy, so this wasn't very long ago at all. He was playing high school football as a pro, uh, predominantly black team that just smoked a predominantly white team. And as they were loading up on the bus and as they were driving away, he remembers all the white people outside of his bus throwing rocks at their bus. This it just happened just, I mean, just a few years ago, basically. It's real stuff. And if you don't sit down and make a friend, you won't hear those stories. I would encourage you to sit down and listen to people's stories. Two more points. One is you need to learn how to speak up. Romans teaches us that each of us will give an account of himself to God. 
And I think we, we need to become educated. We need to study. I would encourage you to do that. Study these issues yourself. But the time will come and the day will come when you're confronted with it. And I would encourage people to speak up. I want to finish with this idea. We need to pray. This is, this is a previous slide, but this is an editorial cartoon from the past, a real, real, real editorial political cartoon. And to me, I look at this, and it's very demonic. I, I, obviously, it's a demonic image, literally, but I see demonism involved in it. And Ephesians teaches us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are not black people fighting against white people or white people fighting against black people. People are not the enemy. There is a far more sinister enemy than that undergirding the whole division, undergirding the whole injustice and race issues. And we need to be people that confront those things spiritually. That's part of what we're going to do on week three. We're going to pray together as a church and, and very much target uh, the, these concepts. Now, I know... Some of you are really mulling this over and maybe even a little bit angry right now. Something I'm, I'm hoping, I wish someone had said this a whole long time ago. And regardless, like I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm hoping that this will be the beginning of a conversation. It will be the beginning of a dialogue. I am completely open to further education on the topic. But the more I've studied the topic, and I've read fairly extensively at this point, the more I've studied, the more I am convinced that as white people, we do carry a certain sort of privilege. Right or wrong, that privilege is there. It doesn't make us evil. It doesn't make us anything special, but it's a reality. And if it's a reality, Scripture indicates that to whom much is given, much is required. And I think if we are people of privilege, we need to examine ourselves and say, what do we do with that privilege? And, and hopefully today we'll give you a few, a few steps in that direction.